in this Christmas season, we're focusing on the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for missions. And just as our missionaries go into the world, Jesus Christ came into this world. So it's very appropriate to talk about the two in the same season. And that's why we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 15. You know, there are so many in our world today that, especially Americans, who feel like they've got something to say. They want to make a statement. Uh, uh, Jake Fromm has made a statement as the University of uh, Georgia quarterback this year. The Houston Astros have made a statement that finally, after more than 50 years of baseball history, somebody should take them seriously by winning the World Series. Indeed, politicians feel like they've got something to say. And so they make statements in a variety of, uh, different, uh, a variety of different ways. Um, retailers, even in this season, feel like they've got something to say. Heard about this one real retailer that was having a sale in the shoe department of his store, and he ran this advertisement with a sign there that said, buy one shoe, get the other for free. <laughs> you may come across some like that. Well, God has something to say, and you want to hear it. First Timothy chapter 1, verse number 15. This uh, continues our series on what Paul said about Jesus coming into the world. And you may not have thought of these verses as describing the birth of Christ and Christ coming into the world, but indeed they do. Here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in verse number 15, Paul makes such a statement. And here he describes that God made a statement in sending Christ into the world. Look what it says there in verse number 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came, and there's his birth, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Jesus came to Bethlehem and was born there to make a statement for God and Himself. Now, what kind of statement is this? Well, there are several ways to describe it. And first, it is a faithful statement. Now, when it comes to God, we're not talking about relative faithfulness. When we talk about you and me, we're talking about relative faithfulness. That is, I'll be faithful to my promise if I can fulfill it. If circumstances are such that I can come through with it. Uh, too often in the United States, especially since the 70s, we've been faithful to our promises and vows as long as it benefits us. That's oftentimes what happens. And so the definition of human faithfulness has slipped and declined through the decades in our own nation. And so whenever we talk about human faithfulness, we're talking about relative faithfulness, relative to some other things, depending on certain circumstances. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about God. When we talk about God and His faithfulness, we are not talking about relative faithfulness. Beloved, we're talking about absolute faithfulness. We're talking about faithfulness that means, with God, reliable without fail a single time. Now, God's eternal. He's been around forever. No one created Him. No one will eliminate Him. And can you imagine a being that has lived forever in the past lives now and will always live, who has always been absolutely reliable without a single failure. God has never had to say, well, depending on the circumstances, I will come through. God has never said uh, to anyone, well, if I feel like it, I'll keep my commitment that I've made to you and my promise. Not at all. And, and that's the word that we find here in verse number 15. This is a 
faithful statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. So it is a statement, a reliable statement that has never failed. And so that's what God is saying to the whole world. I am here to save sinners. Now that comes as no surprise to you, of course. I mean, you've read through the Scripture, perhaps, and are familiar with Christ. Jesus Christ, in fact, was born with sinners. I mean, his, um, his legal father, Joseph, nearly messed up this whole thing. He didn't believe Mary. He didn't buy into her story at all, and he was going to set her aside and divorce her because he assumed, like the rest of the world, that she had been, been unfaithful. And it took an angelic visit to change his mind. And that night, he flipped it around and took Mary as his own wife. That's a subject for another day. But that is to say, Jesus was born with sinners, with people who didn't get it. Jesus lived with sinners. He lived with Peter. In fact, he told Peter before his crucifixion, you're going to deny me three times. In fact, I've had to pray for you because Satan's going to come through your life and sift you is what he's going to do. But when you're strengthened, when you recover, strengthen your brethren. He had to live with sinners. When he died on the cross, he died with sinners. Isaiah prophesied that in Isaiah 53. And there Jesus died with one criminal on the right and one on the left. Now one rejected him, so none of us should get arrogant that we know about the cross. But then one of them received him, and so none of us need to despair at all. Jesus died with sinners sinners. And not only that, but when he commissioned them to the global mission, he commissioned sinners. Matthew 28, he said, I have all authority. Verse 19, he said, go therefore make disciples of all nations. But verse 17 of Matthew 28 says, they came and they worshiped him, but some doubted. Here they were in the presence of the risen Christ, and still some of them were doubting. Jesus lived with sinners. Jesus was born with sinners. Jesus died with sinners. Jesus commissioned sinners. It is a faithful statement. Christ came into the world to save sinners. So it is impossible this morning or any other time to find him anything less than faithful to the statement, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Now, some of you might be saying, well, wait a minute, you don't know what I've done. My response is, if that's your response, you don't know what he's done. When God evaluates you and when God looks at you, when God considers you making his own, he does not examine your behavior. He already knows it. He doesn't look at your behavior. He looks at the behavior of Jesus Christ and with it, he's well satisfied. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, he shouts to the world, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so whenever he considers you, he considers not your behavior, but the behavior of Jesus Christ. And that is good enough for him. So today, after I finish preaching, we're going to sing a song. Our staff will be here. We're going to invite you to come to call on him and turn to him. And we'd like to help you with that when we sing. So Christ Jesus came to Bethlehem to make a faithful statement. But there's a second way to describe the statement God makes. It's not only faithful, but Christ Jesus came at Bethlehem to make an acceptable statement. Paul said, this is a faithful statement worthy of all acceptance. Worthy to be embraced. Worthy to rush and gather it up. It is worthy. In other words, it is fitting. It is appropriate for the kind of God that we're describing. And do you know, we can't describe any other God in the world any other religious faith, anything else but Jesus Christ and the faith he's delivered as this kind of faith. No one else came for this purpose. No one at all. 
Everyone else is exaggerating the potential of humans. But Jesus Christ understands who and what we are. He understands all the failure. And so he comes. And so this kind of statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners is entirely acceptable. It is fitting. It is appropriate. It is worthy for this kind of God. And this God has never made a statement. He's never made a statement that was anything less than acceptable. The whole world should accept this statement. Shepherds did in Luke chapter 2. They had a special angelic choir that sang for the birth of Christ and sent them to Bethlehem where they found things just as they said. And they found Jesus there. And the Bible says they made haste to that site. You ought to make haste today to come to Him after the message. Shepherds accepted it. And then wise men accepted it. They traveled all the way from the east following nothing more than a star to come to Bethlehem to find Jesus. And when they found him, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. They accepted it. Then Simeon and Anna accepted it. Anna had been a widow since about her early 20s. And from then till the age of 84, she was in the temple looking for the coming of the Messiah. Simeon was there, an elderly uh, priest and gentleman, and they brought Jesus there when he was eight days old to dedicate him to the Lord. And he said, Lord, now my eyes have seen your salvation, and I can depart in peace. They accepted. They did not let, allow the years to make them cynical. They did not allow the travel to make them cynical. They did not allow their lower social status to make them cynical and doubting. They accepted the statement. Now, God has done His part by sending Jesus, but it's time for all of us to do our part as well. God does the work to make us uh, savable, but what we have to do is that we have to embrace it and we have to accept it. We've got to personally turn to Jesus Christ. So this is a faithful statement. It's an acceptable statement, but there's a third way to describe it, and that is, it is a universal statement. It's a universal statement. Now look with me a few verses before in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I want you to notice the comparison Paul makes here. At the end of verse 15, he says, uh, this is a faithful statement and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Everyone qualifies. And then he goes even further and intensifies this by saying, of whom I am the what? Chief. We called him the chief of saints. He calls himself the chief of sinners. And, and so that's what he says about himself. But he's begun with the comparison back earlier in chapter 1. Look at verse number 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. There's an inappropriate way to use the Bible. Oh yeah, every heretic, every cultist will feign uh, reverence for the Bible and then will misuse it. And then look what he says in verse 9. The law, the Old Testament law, is uh, this. The law is not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers or fathers, murderers or mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if anything, if there's anything that is contrary to sound doctrine according to the gospel. So Paul has this list of scandalous sins in mind, but then he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I've just listed off all of this scandalous sin the murderers, the, the, the sexually immoral, and so many others. 
and I am worse than them. I'm the chief of them all. Not I was, but currently I am the chief of them all. He stayed humble before God even after he met Jesus. Now how in the world could Paul say, I'm worse than the murderers and the immoral with his life? He, he wasn't murdering people. Paul was not, uh, Paul was not engaged in immorality. He wasn't a kidnapper, which, which is the beginning stages of slavery. He wasn't that at all. He, he, in other words, most of the world would look at Paul and say what we say of him. You say you're the chief of sinners. We think you're the chief of saints. His behavior was very consistent with the gospel of Christ. How is it then that he says, I am the chief of sinners, even more scandalous than these? Well, here's how. Paul knew more. Paul walked with God. And so the expectations of the kingdom were higher on him. His gossip, if he engaged in it, would be far more scandalous than some of these things with people who don't know the gospel of Christ. Because, what did Jesus say? To whom much is given, much is required. So that's how Paul can say that. And so Paul walked with a deep and intense humility before God. And so he could shout to the world, listen, if God will save me and keep me, He will save and He will keep anyone. And listen to what God did. Look at verse number 12. He said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who's enabled me because He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And then watch this, verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. When God sprinkles grace onto His people's lives, well, first, He doesn't sprinkle. He immerses them in it, and then He does not economize. He doesn't have a, an account that He's got to watch like we do with our bank accounts at all. He doesn't, he doesn't have to economize. He doesn't have to budget when it comes to grace. And so Paul said, I found God's grace, His forgiveness of my sins and strength for life, exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying is his conclusion. And worthy of all acceptance then that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the chief. And look why in verse number 16. However, for this reason I obtain mercy that in me first Christ Jesus might be shown, might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe for everlasting life. In other words, Paul's life of grace and his meeting Jesus Christ and having his sins canceled is an example to the world that if God can save and embrace and keep him, he can do it for anyone. And the whole world should accept this. It is a universal statement. Now imagine, imagine one of us making a universal promise and statement like this. Let's just imagine one of us was to stand and say one day in the appropriate context, I can solve all the math problems in the world. Now, I did until they put letters in the math. It's called algebra. Can you imagine someone making that statement? There are even mathematicians, professional mathematicians, that would struggle with some. There's only a handful of people that have ever solved Einstein's theory of relativity. Very difficult. So, uh, uh, can you imagine someone making that statement? Or, I can solve every vehicle problem in the world. I know mechanics. Some, some of you got cars, you can't fix those. I mean, there's just some you're just not going to fix. 
But can you imagine someone making a statement like that? And then what if someone said, I can solve every financial problem in the world? Or I can solve every family problem in the world? Well, right immediately, the moment that person states that, red flags go up in you. In fact, I was taught uh, when I was in um, my first semester of Greek in college that you really cannot use the word always or never in the Greek language. And that's true for most languages. Some things don't always go a certain way with Greek grammar, and some things don't, and, and, and then you don't ever say never when it comes to that as well. And I found, you know what, that's, that's pretty good for the rest of life. It's very difficult to say always and never when it comes to human beings. So the moment I say I can solve every math problem, I can solve every vehicle problem, I can solve every financial or family problem, that moment I am guilty of exaggeration and overpromising. Do you realize God has never faced that problem? Jesus Christ has never exaggerated or overpromised. He can come through with every person. You think about Cain, who out of the garden commits the first sin after the garden and kills his brother. God even warned him and said, wait, you, you need to watch out. Your countenance is low. That means your heart's far from me. Sin is crouching at the door, he said in Genesis chapter 4. You need to watch it. Cain doesn't pay a bit of attention to him. He's like some people you and I know, maybe like some of us. He just completely dismissed the warnings of God, and he went and killed his brother anyway while they were in the field. And you know what? God confronted him about it. He said, your brother's blood's crying out from the earth. And God and, and Cain repented. Cain turned to the Lord and God marked him with an undefined mark to warn the rest of the world, keep your hands off Cain. Can you believe God would respond that way to Cain? That's what he did. Think about Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho. She sheltered the spies from Israel who uh, took inventory of the city of Jericho to see if it was ready for uh, their, their operations. And she hid them and they said, if you'll tie this red ribbon to the door or to your window, We'll know not to attack that and we'll bring you and make you a part of Israel, you and your family. She did precisely that. She hung up the red ribbon. When Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, there were ribbons of blood flowing from Calvary. And that's what God has done. And Rahab came in and she married, and she married into what would become the line of Jesus Christ. She is in the family tree of Jesus. Then there's Manasseh. Manasseh ruled... Judah for 55 years, one of the, probably the worst and most wicked king of uh, Judah ever to uh, live. In fact, it was during his reign that he engaged in such hateful, murderous, deadly idolatry from the throne of Judah that God decided Judah's opportunity is over and God said the doom of Judah now is sealed, all because of the rule and reign of Manasseh. You know what happened? On his deathbed. Manasseh repented and turned to the Lord. Now, there aren't many deathbed conversions in the Scriptures, so don't, don't be presumptuous. You come to him today. But that's what Manasseh did. He turned to God there, and God saved him and cleansed him. And then you've got the Gerasene demoniac. I mean, he's running around the tombs. He doesn't wear any clothes. He cuts himself with rocks. He chases away anyone that gets near him. And when Jesus cast out all of the demons in him, they're so large they ruin a hog farmer's hog operation of 2,000 head. And Jesus saves him, and he wants to go be one of his disciples. 
Jesus says, no, you go to your home and tell people what great things the Lord has done for you and how he's had compassion on you. He does that in Mark chapter 5, and by Mark chapter 7, Jesus returns and gets a great harvest because of this man's seed planting and cultivating work in that area. But the man was full of thousands of demons and a wreck and a mess in every conceivable way. Have you ever known anyone that bad? I mean, I've been to youth camp, I've been to RA camp, I've been to deacons meetings, and I still don't know anybody that bad, you see. And that is what we find in the Scripture. Jesus Christ has never exaggerated or over-promised. Every one of His promises are precisely fit for the sinning soul. It's no secret what Christ can do and what He's done for others, He will do for you. That leads me to share a little bit of a lengthy quote from T.B. Maston who uh, was ethics professor at Southwestern for many, many years. Dr. Scarborough hired him in 1923, and soon after T.B. Maston got there, he began to tell Christians around the nation, you need to have your mind and heart biblical about race relations, all the way back in the 20s. And he took a stand, and sometimes he suffered for that stand. But here's what he said. He said, we could search the world over, but we could not find a man so low, so degraded, so far below the social, economic, and moral norms that he had not been created in the image of God and had not been included in the blessed whosoevers of the redeeming gospel of Christ. Everyone here today within the sound of my voice and everyone beyond it has been made in the image of God. God values you. You are important to Him. And even though you and I have sinned and violated the law of God, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And so we are included in all the blessed whoever's of the Scripture. John 3, 15, whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's you. John 4, 13 and 14, Jesus answered and said to the Samaritan woman, whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but it will become a spring of well water into eternal life. John eleven twenty six. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And then John twelve forty six. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes on me should not work in, uh, walk in darkness. And then, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 163 times. The word whoever is used in the Bible 29 times alone in the gospel of John. John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, he said this, I'm so glad that God promised whoever believes in him. And he didn't say if John Newton believes in him. I'm so insecure I would have thought he meant some other John Newton. But when he says whoever, that means me. How vast, how immeasurable, how lengthy, how broad. How expansive is the love of God for you? Whoever, it's a faithful statement, worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. It is universal, and because it's universal, it is for you. What a statement. What a statement. Your move now. It's your move to come to Him. It's your move to embrace the truth of this and the God behind it, the Savior behind it. Well, what do I do? Well, let me ask you something. Have you ever deposited a paycheck or any kind of check written to you into the bank? We do a lot of that electronically today, but when someone does write us a check, we go to the bank, we endorse it, and we deposit it 
into the bank. Have you ever done that? What you've done is that you have just entrusted the bank with your financial resources. In fact, probably most of your resources, or many of them, are there. Have you ever deposited your children into childcare, like the nursery here at the church? You deliver these most precious people in your life to the hands and the care of someone else. Maybe a family member, maybe a childcare worker at a church or some other place. Have you ever deposited and entrusted your children to someone else's care? That's what it means to trust Jesus Christ. And that's what he's calling you to do today. He's, trusting, he's calling you to trust his love enough to give him your sins and your guilt. That he won't embarrass you. He won't call you out. He won't make you ashamed. That he instead will take your sins, eliminate them, and embrace you and bring you to himself. That's what he'll do. And then he, he's calling you today, right now, you, to entrust your eternity to him. That he'll take care of the other side of the grave. And then he's trust, calling you to trust everything in between to him. Entrust it all, your life. Our staff want to help you pray about that today. In a moment, they'll come and stand here and they'll receive you as you come. But let's pray together first.